Hi, I'm Tony. I'm Patrick. Welcome to Cave to the Cross Apologetics. We are working our way through Scott Christensen's book on evil, right? It is entitled, What About Evil? A Defense of God's Sovereign Glory. And we are in chapter 8, where, among other things, what he's trying to show us is if God is in control, if he is sovereign over all of his creation, then and somehow then evil is allowed to happen. Right, that that you can't disconnect God from the happenings of evil, and that's what He's trying to do in in chapter uh, eight here. And we looked at uh, what He had to say with regard to Job, right? And Job again says, you know, can we not have good and evil come from God? <gasps> evil come from God, and notice uh, that Job is not condemned for saying that, right? And so you have to kind of there's a tension here, you know, a paradox we might say. Um, where uh, somehow God is not morally culpable, and yet he is responsible for, for evil, right? I mean, that's, and so he's working through biblical passages that show, show that. We've worked our way up to um, this whole idea of divine hardening, right? Uh, the Bible consistently indicates that human decision-making proceeds from our thoughts and our intentions, Furthermore, many passages speak of God's looking at the heart when judging a person's character. So God is looking at what we are and how we're making decisions. This indicates that a person retains a significant, um, Christensen tells us, a significant kind of personal control over his or her in, uh, inner thoughts and dispositions and thus responsible for what is generated in the heart. We're responsible for that. Right, right, right. And that's one of the reasons why I think Christians picks both Job and uh, what we're going to look at here for divine hardening is because the scripture is really clear, unless you're trying to kind of get around it with, you know, the idea of libertarian free will. But um, he uses verses in, in the Job passage and in, in what will happen here in divine hardening of saying, no, no, this is what God, this is what God did. And not only that, we have people saying, this is what God did. And even though, with Job, we've kind of torn back the curtain a little bit, seen what happens in, in the divine realm, and 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 sees that it's uh, Satan and God having this conversation among the the sons of, of men up up in uh, the throne room. Uh, but no one on earth knows that except for however whoever the the author of, of Job ended up being. Right, and notice he also mentions that Job, neither Job, Job's wife, Job's uh, brothers and sisters, none of them mention Satan as the source of this evil. They all say it comes from God. Right. Right? Yeah. Nor does Job sin uh, when he attributes it to God. His wife does sin when she says, curse God and die. Yeah. Right. Probably not the best thing to do. God is in control, and so curse him and die, not curse Satan for doing this. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we can learn something from that uh, Baptist <laughs> preachers. <laughs> uh, so many might suppose that this is evidence of libertarian free will, but not so fast. <laughs> many other complementary passages indicate that the heart is controlled by God. For example, compare what Solomon writes in, in Proverbs 21 two. He states, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. In the previous verse, however, he asserts the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. That's God. God's turning it wherever he wills. Mm. But we all have liberty and free will. God, God would not interact with us at that level because we need to be free. We need to be able to do what we need to do. 
And uh, well, okay, maybe it's just just this one time that Proverbs twenty one one and Ezra six twenty two and seven twenty seven talk about. There's no contradiction here, though. It merely affirms compatibilism. We are constantly conscious that our hearts belong to us. We have ownership of our inner being and our person. Yet our hearts rest first and foremost in the hands of the ultimate owner of human souls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now what is striking, he says, is how many times scripture indicates that God freely hardens the heart of his creatures, right? right? Uh, Romans nine eighteen, for instance, he has mercy on whom he, uh, whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills, yeah. right? Pharaoh is obviously the prime example right. here of this yeah. divine heart hardening. Uh, Exodus, uh, you know, chapters 4 through 17 records the episodes surrounding the plagues of judgment on the Egyptians and the uh, exodus, uh, you know, by the Israelites from, from enslavement in Egypt. I mean, with how many plagues occur, <laughs> with how, how many times Moses has to come before Pharaoh would say, this is going to happen, and mm-hmm. it happens, it's got to be divine hardening. Yeah, right. So <laughs> notice, throughout the ordeal, numerous times Pharaoh, though, is said to have uh, to have hardened his own heart, right? That's, that's right. what it says right. numerous times. Very much You know, so. it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Yet prominently, Christensen tells us, interspersed, right, in this in the same episode, we read that God hardened his heart, mm-hmm. right? Right. So there's no disparity between Pharaoh's hardening and God's hardening. Pharaoh is secondary, immediate cause of the hardening. He consciously, willingly, freely generated the stubbornness and his refusal to let God's people go. He wasn't like, oh, all right, I'll let him go. And then suddenly, you know, he sits up straight and starts moving marionette. You shall not go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this this isn't God, you know, coming down and, 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 and uh, you know, t- pulling on the, the, the strings there. But at the same time, God is the primary but remote cause of Pharaoh's hardening. Scripture is merely affirming dual or compatibilistic explanation for what is transpiring in the stubborn rule is the heart. And again, I, I have to, to recommend uh, What About Free Will by Scott Christensen. Uh, who, who, who would have thought? Uh, because he, if, if you're kind of looking for more information, especially on this part too, um, he talks about that with primary and secondary causes. Um, you can see our, our interview with, with uh, him as well uh, to kind of um, uh, get a, uh, a good take on that as well. Yeah. So notice God indicates that all this hardening had a greater good, right? He communicates to Pharaoh, but in, in early on in Exodus 9, uh, but for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So all this hardening that God did and also that Pharaoh did, uh-huh. right? was for a greater good. The supernatural power invested uh, in the devastating plagues, Christensen tells us, and the glorious exit of the Israelites to the midst of the Red Sea left an indelible impact, not only, you know, on uh, all who witnessed these things, but also in subsequent um, history. Yeah. And so, you know, you get to, um, uh, you know, uh, even um, when they go to... Uh, Jericho, right? To to destroy Jericho, people are afraid. Why? <laughs> well, because of what God did in Egypt, you know, over forty years ago. Yeah, right. And so it left a, a, a indelible impact. Right. right? But e- even within the conquest narratives, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Medo Persians, there's there's uh, you know we were reading in Daniel. Th- there's passages references back to the Exodus. Mm-hmm. It's it's a, a a staple 
within the Old Testament and also the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Jesus mentioned it a number of times. Yeah. The, the apostles mentioned it a number of times in, in their writings. The and, whole Passover yeah. meal is about the Exodus, <laughs> right? right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, it plays a big key point. And, and look at what it does. It, it, it takes out the claims of the Egyptian gods. It takes out the, the wealth of the Egyptians. It takes out the military of the Egyptians. So this hardening was done so that the kind of complete ruin of any claim of power, well, if Pharaoh would have just done this, or if they would have just had this, or yeah, okay, they lost their slaves, but they're so powerful that they could have, no, 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 all this was taken away, and they had to, you know, go find other sources to replenish their, their you know, uh, cows and in the fields and, and everything like that. Even the Nile itself turns <laughs> to blood. So it's it's a complete ruin of Egypt from any source of, of power might claim that they would do. Yeah. And once Israel becomes a nation, uh, there's a decree by God not to go back to Egypt to get things like chariots and horses and stuff right. like that, but to and, rely on God. And so what we see here is basically a defeat of the Egyptian gods. Right? <laughs> right, yeah. The Lord is Lord, and he shows that by what the devastation that he does uh, in Egypt. Idolatry is bad. Idolatry uh-huh. is evil. Idolatry will be punished. Right. 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 And that's what we see in this account, or at least part of what we see. And even right. what, what starts out as the first initial offering let us go into the desert, make offering to God. We'll return. It's simple at first. And then once it ramps up, it gets deeper and deeper of let my people go. We're mm-hmm. done with this. We're going to go away. So much so as they're leaving, not only are they bringing Egyptian gold out of there, go away here, t- take <laughs> yeah, it, take don't this, come back. Yeah, that's so right. you don't yeah. ever come back. You have your, <laughs> uh, have gold to buy food or whatnot on the road, but even Egyptians go with them and become part of the, the, the people, people of God. God. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Amazing yeah. story. Really yeah. cool. <laughs> the manner in which God hardens humans' hearts remains a mystery. We don't we don't know how it happens. It's not described of of okay, here's where Pharaoh's heart hardened a little bit, and here's where God comes in and goes, Hey, don't you remember mm-hmm. the that, that one frog that fell into your mm-hmm. mouth? Ooh, that was slimy. Harden it a little bit more. He's like, yeah, I will harden it a little bit more. That's more than slime. (laughs) God never actively moves the will of the sinner. He never infuses evil thoughts into the mind of anyone. Thus, God's manner of hardening at times may be a withdrawal of his common grace, as Paul Mm -hmm. Copin suggests. Mm -hmm. He may remove his restraints to human evil. And that's something that I I don't think we um, um, speak up against enough, is we just assume Oh, you know, yeah, okay, we're, we're fallen sinners, but we're, we're not that bad sometimes. Yeah. No, no, we're not that bad sometimes because God declares that we're not that bad sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. But as Paul indicates in Romans 1, uh, 24 and 32, three times Paul uses the phrase, God gave them up. And, and Romans 1, we talked about this a number of times. Any good presuppositionalist knows Romans 1, 20, verse 24, 26, 28. He indicates here, Paul does that, he allows a breach in the dam that holds back the wicked from carrying out their evil desires. He gives them over. He lets them uh, uh, be susceptible even more so to the evil so much that, uh, you know, they replace the glory of uh, the image of God for image of man and worship the, the creature rather than the creator. Well, Okay, that's that's not what they're supposed to do, and calamity befalls them even more and more and more, showing the depravity and degradation that comes from it. And we see actually the other side of it, right? This, you know, it meant Christensen tells us the manner in which God hardens hearts remains a mystery. But notice in Romans chapter one, what we see is 
the manner in which God keeps us from the, you know, uh, all uh, from ugly evil is kind of mysterious, right? right? Because he's so he's holding people back so that they're not as evil as they could be, right? In the hardening of the heart, he's allowing people to be evil, and 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 in Romans chapter one, he's keeping people from being evil, although he kind of withdraws little by little that influence, right. right? And so, yeah, it's it's a really interesting thing. But in all of this, we see that God is you know ultimately in control of his creation. And that's the point that Christensen wants us to see. Mm -hmm. God is in control of his creation, whether good, bad, what ugly, whatever God is in control. Right. And so he tells us that at other times, scripture indicates that Satan or other evil spirits become his instruments to incite evil, you know, as in Job's case. Uh, And so in this sense, we might say that God permits sin and evil And yet he tells us this is not a passive or bare permission, but rather a deliberate, active, or willing permission, right? Scripture uses, he he says, a range of of language to to indicate that all evil is ultimately part of God's purposeful decree. Mm -hmm. And so we must not avoid the language of divine causation or determination, right, in an attempt to try to protect God. He can protect himself. Right. And so we don't need to do that. We need to we need to say what scripture says about who God is and what he does. Right. right? He gives us actually a rather long quote by D.A. Carson with regard to this. It's on page 194 there. Yeah, he says this. He says, little is gained by uh, being more pious in our use of language than the Bible is. And much may be lost by being too protective of God. We are, in fact, building a grid out of only a subset of the biblical materials and filtering out some of what is revealed in the Bible about the God who has so graciously disclosed himself. The result, rather sadly, is a God, small g, who is either less than sovereign or less than personal, either incompetent and frustrated or impassive and stoical. For the God of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is utterly transcendent and passionately personal. These are among the givens of Scripture and we sacrifice them out. Uh, we sacrifice them to our peril. We kind of deny God who He is, and again, uh, letting evil just run loose in the world without um, without anchoring it in the uh, character Sovereign and nature of, of control God. of right, God. Yeah. yeah, providence of God, right. meticulous providence of God is scary yeah. if we allow if, that. If, right? If evil can happen, how come I can't happen? <laughs> yeah. Or you know, God says you know. Uh, not that one saved all you save is, is in the Bible, but uh, I would I will persevere to the end. Uh, you know, He holds me in His hand, and God holds me in that other hand, and so I'm <laughs> I'm like you know double protected, or right. triple protected, try, try, triunally protected right. is probably the, the better thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so how how can I trust Him if if these uh, you know we we talk about free radicals in science, these free evil radicals are, are <laughs> bouncing around the universe. So God's providence, as it stands behind good and evil as its primary causal agent is asymmetrical. He stands behind good in a direct way and behind evil indirectly. It has to happen like this. This has to be the case. When God decrees evil, however, it must always have some good purpose, some extraordinary, constructive, and weighty end. Consequently, it must proceed in some mysterious way from an aspect of God's all good nature. Yeah, and we see this in uh, Joseph's account, right? You you meant for this to be evil. God meant for this to be good. Right. So God, when he decrees evil, 
means for it to ultimately be for some good thing right. to come about. Not that the evil isn't evil, but that God is a trying to accomplish some good purpose mm-hmm. by the evil. And right? even, especially in, in, in that example too, God restrains the evil that the brothers wanted to do. They wanted to kill him. Yeah. No, 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 no. Let's right. sell him off, says one of the brothers. Yeah. So he's, he's allowing it to happen. So th- their evil desires are what causes them to go against the brother. But he also puts... You know, one of the brothers in the perfect position, he, he's actualized this world and instilled in his heart this desire, and he 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 offsets his his free will, his libertarian free will to suggest, no, 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 let's just sell him to some slave traders. Ooh, that's good. But then, what? It's 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 not that. It's not it's not. He's coming around to like you know a bumpers on a pin pinball machine, and hopefully he'll get it in the right slot and get the highest <laughs> score. No, no, what they intended for evil. God is matching the same way he's intending it for good. And you see that throughout the story of Joseph, not just that one selling into slavery. The whole story is about that. Right. When God decrees evil, however, it must always have some good purpose, some extraordinary, constructive, and weighty end. Consequently, it must proceed in some mysterious way from the aspect of God's all good nature. Somehow he is able to ordain evil, to declare it, and providentially ensure that it takes place, and yet he emphatically commits no evil whatsoever. He can only do good. All right. So in ordering and ensuring that evil takes place, God does something utterly unique, Christensen tells us, right? A uh, unique God does something unique? Uh, Hold God, the press. Yeah, go figure, right? <laughs> it always, and he always ensures uh, what is ultimately good, right? And, uh, and so this is something that only God can do. Uh, we can never fully grasp it, Christensen tells us, precisely because it is God who is doing it. Right. right? And again, where is it grounded? This is grounded in the character and nature of God. He is, is unable to do evil. He cannot sin. There are, uh, these are the things that God can't do. He can't make a, a rock so heavy that he himself can lift mm-hmm. it. He can't make square circles, and he can't do evil. Right. And so God is good, and in him there is no darkness. There's only light. And so... If that's true, grounded in the character of nature of God, we can't put ourselves in the character and nature of God because we are not like that. We don't know how that operates. We we exist in this kind of dual aspect of of good or evil, or restrained evil and and good, or a changed heart and and uh, a sin nature. So you know, d- depending on which you know kind of bumper you want to hit off there <laughs> but we we say oh you know if i were to do this well yes if you were to do this you probably would be morally culpable because you wouldn't be able to actualize it in the way that god does because god is is, is god is god yeah and and not just he is only good but he is just he is merciful he is all these things together he's not parts we can't part it out but we have parts and so the the communicable and uncommunicable uh attributes of god come into play here and when we say Oh well, you know he he must be evil because this must be the case because if I were God, right? We're, he's transcendent. He he's unable to do that, and he's all good. He's not evil. We aren't, and so we can't put ourselves and just have have the equation equal the same amount there. Mm-hmm. So the greatest evil. This, wow, this the is the greatest. Thing. Evil, we're going to talk right. about the greatest evil. And I, right. I, I think you know th- this one. This one has has it all. If if, if you weren't <laughs> if you didn't like Job, you didn't like Pharaoh. Uh, if you didn't like lamentations, if you didn't like calamity, calamity, all is calamity. Here's the greatest evil 
that God's going to use for good. There's only one example that we can categorize as the greatest evil ever perpetrated. It is the one example that strains injustice to its limits. It's the one example in which suffering itself strains the limits of comprehension. Men have written about it over and over outside the bounds of Scripture. They look at it, they say, here's the greatest injustice done, the greatest subjection of, of what shouldn't have been subjected. It also demonstrates that God himself does not remain aloof from the pain that evil produces because he entered that pain via the incarnation. The incarnation. Not, obviously, not just Jesus is a baby, <laughs> yeah. but the whole incarnation. Right. So obviously we're talking about the crucifixion of the Son of God, right? It should not escape our notice that God meticulously planned and executed the greatest evil perpetrated in history. And that evil involved God himself entering its dark portals, Christensen tells us, right? So this is the greatest evil, and yet God planned it uh, and carried it out meticulously. It was, you know, prophesied detail by detail, right, uh, in the Old Testament. So to, un to understand what took place, Christensen tells us, in the crucifixion of Christ is to touch on the heart of evil and God's response to it, mm -hmm. right? And uh, so this hints, he tells us, at where biblical theodicy must be located, in a cosmically oriented work of redemption via the substitutionary atonement of Christ, right? Right, right. God is going to agree that this is evil, but also ultimately good. Before the foundation of the world, it was predestined. And all these people, all these free will actors in, in whatever capacity, had to have children, allow people to live. They had to be the type of person that continued it from, from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to Romans and the increase in, in knowledge and technology and wealth and global control and ultimately resting on hill of calvary that's where it culminates <laughs> and so uh he says but uh it suffices so he's not gonna um go fully into this it's gonna be in another chapter right he says it suffices for the time being to say that christ bore the enormous weight of evil on his shoulders and that this was a by god's design right god ensured that that his decreative will christensen tells us to crush him right in uh, what Isaiah says, right, mm -hmm. crush him, was carried out in providentially meticulous detail. Right. right. So the, the, the idea that, that uh, you know, the YouTube atheists have of, oh, you know, God just died over the weekend and he got full glory and, and that's it. It, it. it devalues any idea that the Bible has on what sin is, what the sacrifice was, how important it is. And again, that that infinite nature of God is grounded in what was what was done in the temple with the sacrifices there pointing to Christ and so God has to be fully man and he has to be fully God especially fully God here because God is transcendent and infinite and requires an infinite transcendent sacrifice mm -hmm. to happen and that can only be Jesus yeah and so God you know, has to do it himself right because right? he's the only being that's infinite <laughs> right. and transcendent. Right, right. right. He, he incarnates himself. He, yeah. he humbles himself. He, he, he gives up his position and comes down. It's, it's amazing. And, and that's where um, other religions like Islam, like Judaism, you know, they, they have an idea of, of transcendent God. But with respect to sin, it's just, oh, well, he forgives. Yeah. 
that that's it. Like he forgets. So that, and that but actually, justice isn't done. Yeah, exactly. It lowers the nature of God. It demeans justice. Right? If if we've been again. And, you know, we've said it now, and we're both blue in the <laughs> face, right? If we've uh, committed an infinite, uh, you know, uh, wrongdoing, it requires, justice requires an infinite penalty. Right. That's Otherwise, it's not justice, yeah. right? I, I spit in the infinite God, the all-good God, the all-creator uh, from nothing that I not only rely on my existence for, but also my continued existence, plus the restraining of my evil heart that could have been worse. And he's just going to go, that's all right. Yeah, that's right. I forgive you. Oh, more. That is is not justice. Right. 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 All right. Well, what about moral culpability? Right. So here's the Bible's all fine and good. Exactly. And this is the issue, right? So are we saying then that God is evil? Yeah. Right. That's the issue. Right. Is he morally evil? And of course, we're not saying that. Right. right? And but, Christensen is not saying that. Right. right. Even if God is evil, we shouldn't say that because <laughs> he would do evil stuff to us. So God's self-revelation recorded in the pages of Scripture includes these two indisputable truths. First, God being God's being is characterized by impeccable goodness. It's only good. It can't be evil. It's unable to be that way. Right. He is wholly righteous and free of any taint of evil in his nature and therefore in his thoughts, his words, and his actions. But second, God sovereignly decrees and providentially ensures all evil that transpires in this world. And that occurs even in libertarian free will model. It's it's still done that way. All right. In fact, he says, even though many non-Christian Calvinist Christians have denied the second claim, there's a sense embedded within the, uh, you know, imago deo of our humanity. Um, we know that uh, if God is truly who he has revealed himself to be, right, the sovereign Lord of all creation, then he must be the all-encompassing sovereign of both good and evil, right, as Job understood, right? Otherwise, he's not the sovereign Lord of all creation, right? right? So, yeah, if, if, you can, if you can have evil be kind of a part, how come can't have good be a part. Well, yeah. Maybe there are free radical goods out in the world that just <laughs> happen. And, 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 you and know, there's of course, no truth maker yeah. of, of goodness. Right. And then God's not in control and then anything might happen. And then woe is us. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Woe right. are we. Yeah. And then, and then, uh, you know, all, all my good works are like filthy rags. Well, except for the really good ones that I did on my own as a part <laughs> without anyone telling me to do one way or the other. Well, Christensen ends this chapter by saying, but doesn't this leave us stuck with an irresolvable conundrum? Is it still hard to escape the the charge that it makes God the author of evil? His moral culpability does not appear to be mitigated by these facts. How can God charge his secondary agents with guilt for that which he has already determined they will do? Is there any possibility of reconciling God's goodness with his sovereignty over evil while freeing God from all charges of acting sinfully of being indistinguishable from the devil himself. <laughs> and we will explore that in finally the chapter that was promised chapter nine, all right. the chapter of all yeah, chapters, so right. the culmination of yeah. the book. <laughs> yeah. Maybe so. <laughs> not exactly. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so again, it, by the it, way, this book has, let's see, has, um, 17 chapters, so nine is not going to be the end. So hang in there with us, (laughs) folks, right? (laughs) This is the the rising action and falling. So, uh, so yes, uh, again, what Christensen is doing is he's, he's building and he's building slowly. And that's what we want because 
He's knocked down. He's knocked down the high places, the tent poles of <laughs> of elite. Uh, you know, uh, the 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 um, the towers of of industry and uh, from the colleges. The the scholars themselves have said, "Well, well, we can't do anything against this person's idea of free will." And he's saying, "Nope, there are issues." And now that I've knocked him down, there's got to be something. And he's turning to scripture, and so that's what he's doing. That's what this this whole chapter was. These last two episodes, building an idea so that we're not just going, well, isn't God the author of evil? Well, hold on. Let's make sure that he's the, the author of good and evil. And let's talk about his characteristics and his transcendent nature. And then we'll get into it. So, you know, if, if you're like, Oh, just come on, get to the point. We have to build, we have to build and, and, and structure these things so that we have a theodicy of all evil, not just some to the best of our ability. So that's what Christians is doing. Will he be successful? I don't know. I haven't read yeah. the back of the book yet, but we'll see. And yeah. hopefully you'll come along with us and continue to read uh, What About Evil as we walk through uh, the sovereignty of God to see if God is morally culpable for evil. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. See you next time.